Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Good afternoon. You're listening to Praxis. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I'm doing a special uh, pre-recorded episode for today, Armistice Day, a.k.a. Veterans Day. And I'm here with three members of Local Chapter 35 Veterans for Peace to talk about uh, reclaiming Armistice Day, talk about their experience as veterans for peace and more. So uh, thank you all for being here. Maybe we can just go around and do quick introductions so people know your voices. Starting over here. Hi, my name is Hollis Higgins. I'm the uh, current secretary of Spokane Veterans for Peace, chapter number 35. My name is George Taylor. I currently serve as vice president of VFP 35. I did my service in the U.S. Navy from 1961 to 65. Rusty Nelson of, uh, well, a charter member of uh, chapter 35, Veterans for Peace. I have an Army background, which was a very brief part of my life, but it made me a veteran, and uh, a Vietnam veteran, and a combat veteran. And somehow it seems that that gives me special license to talk about things like foreign policy, which uh, many veterans have no clue what they would say or think about. but. that's what brings us to the whole matter of reclaiming Armistice Day from Veterans Day, which Armistice Day became in 1954. Yeah. Do you want to share that history, I guess? Yes. I, uh, what we did this morning was start with uh, chiming a bell 11 times. And that was the tradition that began on the 11th hour of the 11th, the 11th day of the 11th month. And that happened in 1918 to coincide with the ceasefire that ended the hostilities of what we call World War One. And uh, of course, in those days, it was called the Great War. In fact, probably until the middle of World War Two, it was called the Great War. And that became a problem for those of us who came along much later because there seems to be the possibility of a great war. That means not just a huge war, a large war, a war that grows out of control, but something that's kind of magnificent and wonderful. And that is a terrible way for any people to look at something like war as if it could possibly accomplish something good or that uh, anything good could come out of it or that it might be better than the consequences of not having war. So that's pretty much where I think Veterans for Peace comes down on uh, terminology like that. As for uh, Armistice Day, Uh, It became a very significant day. Of course, uh, many people recall that World War I was to be the war to end all wars, and that's how Woodrow Wilson was convinced to get the United States in. And I think a lot of American uber-patriots forget that we got to that party really late, and Americans did not suffer anything near the horrors and terrible hardships and uh, ugly deaths that French and British and German soldiers did in particular. So it's, um, it's something that we should remember when we talk about armistice because that made it possible for the sides to gather and, and talk about peace accords. And from that uh, notion and the idea that the, the war was finally over, um, which seems funny now if we talk about the war being finally over mm-hmm. after four or five years uh, when we have this thing, in this atrocity in Afghanistan that 
will not end. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the armistice also is a con- starts a concept that I think is very important today, and that is that wars cannot be won. They can be ended. They can be lost. They can have multiple nations as horrible losers, but they cannot be won. And uh, so Armistice Day spawned an, a number of uh, trends and events. And one thing that came out of the attitude of the entire civilized world at that time was the uh, Kellogg-Briand Treaty. And that is not taught in our schools today. And uh, probably, I mean, I don't know what they teach about World War I now in school, but when I was in school, you, taught, you heard about General Black Jack Pershing and uh, how it was so wonderful of the Americans to go over and help the, uh, the people out over there <laughs> against uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. But um, the Kellogg-Briand Treaty was uh, a magnificent document that was agreed upon by uh, the, all of the major participants in World War I and uh, other countries that were affected by it to end war, to outlaw war. And that is still a part of the uh, United States Constitution because it was adopted by the Senate. And uh, it's interesting in our part of the world that uh, the Senator Bora from Idaho was one of the lead pushers of that Kellogg-Briand Treaty. Hmm. But that was all thrown out the window when Hitler began his march, of course, all in reaction to what happened to Germany after the armistice was signed. And uh, so it was uh, in 1926, the United States began observing Armistice Day as a national holiday. And it was a day for peace and for reconciliation, for neighborhood with, uh, with other countries of the world. Then in 1954, President Eisenhower and Congress decided that there were a lot of World War II vets who weren't really getting enough attention. And so they decided to change Armistice Day to Veterans Day. And from my perspective, that went rapidly downhill because now you have Veterans Day basically every day of the year in our country. We get your uh, thank you for your service every day. We hear Mm -hmm. platitudes and uh, cute little sayings from uh, merchants and uh, so forth. We've got to take care of our veterans. We've got lip service from Congress, and we have to take care of our veterans. We have to salute our veterans. We have to honor our veterans. And on a personal level, I hate this because I know a lot of veterans who wouldn't know what service was if it slapped them in the face. We have people who were deadbeats, who were alcoholics, drug addicts, uh, obstreperous and uncooperative people who might have spent their entire, uh, most of their tour of service in the brig or the stockade. And they are lumped in with people who really gave it a good mm-hmm. go and with good intentions. Just we were all in a stupid mm-hmm. war and yeah. it was there was nothing good to be done. Present company not included, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> well, the I brig think, comment. I think, uh, you know, Hollis actually was, uh, was a bit of bubble gum in the hair of the military <laughs> during his term. So I think that was a positive thing. And uh, George was... Uh, pre-Vietnam, so <clears throat> there was what we call the peacetime uh, military, mm-hmm. and uh, so that, that all comes into play, but uh, I'll, I'll back off a little bit here, and I'll get some uh, comments from uh, these guys, because we have all thought about uh, 
how it's, it's painful to see so many people so accepting of anything in the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some other things I'd like to talk about along those lines, but uh, we need to get some, yeah. some more input and more creativity from. Well, and, and well, with what you're saying, I guess just to build on what you're saying about Veterans Day and the surface level, like platitudes, I hear veterans invoked a lot every time anyone wants to criticize U.S. foreign policy or be a football player protesting police brutality or whatever you know then it's like oh what about the veterans you're disrespecting the veterans and you know i know you all and i know people in my generation who (laughs) don't feel disrespected by by that um and it turns into kind of a a weird blanket statement so yes yeah is there anything you two want to add about about the whole idea of armistice versus veterans day hollis and george Yes, uh, I, I want to uh, say amen to Rusty's comments, and I have a little sticker on the back of my truck that says, support our troops, bring them all home. Uh, our, our current military situation is very tragic, where we have uh, tens of thousands of American troops in the Middle East, and we have our own Fairchild Air Force Base involved in those wars with the KC-135s uh, supplying fuel for Saudi Arabian Air, uh, Air Force jets to bomb innocent civilians in the country of Yemen, a country with which we're not at war. But I want to tell a little story. Uh, World War I is not simply a, a remote historical event for me. It's very much alive in my own family because my grandmother's brother, who we called Uncle Leighton Voorhees, was in World War I. And I knew Uncle Leighton. He was uh, kind of a renegade uncle in our family, lifelong bachelor. As an 18-year-old young man, he had been drafted by the Woodrow Wilson Army, went over to France in what was called uh, Blackjack Pershing's uh, Expeditionary Force and served in a machine gun battalion. And uh, a ammunition wagon drawn by horses, this was in the family legend, exploded underneath him, similar to an IUD in, uh, in, in the Middle East today. Um, and came back, was, came back from the Army in what my grandmother called shell-shocked, which today we call post-traumatic stress. And Uncle Layton, she said, my grandmother said, was never the same. He was very jittery, very anxious. He, di- he was employed, never married. I believe, uh, and Uncle Layton died when I was 15 years old, and I remember he had full military funeral the American Legion was there and his military service was honored in World War One as it should have been but World War One really destroyed that man it, it hollowed him out it damaged his psyche in what we now call post-traumatic stress and in today's young men and women coming back from the Middle East we have hundreds of thousands uh, coming back with who are seriously damaged both psychologically and physically and uh, one of the purposes of Veterans for Peace in our local chapter here in Spokane is to, is to share with the public the costs of war, both in blood and treasure, and in these, these damaged young men and women coming back. And our, our society has authorized this. Our government has authorized this. And it's up to us as citizens to pull that back. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much to be said about our war-making society that was actually based on genocide and war. We've never known, uh, what did they say, seven years in the existence of the United States has been without war, and I, it's probably in preparation for war uh, or, or cleaning up afterwards. But uh, I, there's just so much to be said about uh, how do you be a peaceful person in this environment uh, where everyone is doggy dog and uh, you don't trust your neighbor and everybody is out to get you and the individual has to protect themselves because they can't rely on anybody else so go to the woods and make sure you, you got your booby traps up at your front gate and if you go down uh, the entire northern border of the United States 100 miles in, uh, those 
counties all went for Rand Paul when he ran for president because he was talking about getting the U.S. out of foreign uh, involvements and uh, taking care of the homeland, defend the homeland. So uh, there's a whole bunch of survivalists up there. I don't know uh, how, how you talk to people like that and say, well, it's okay, we're not at war, but because we are at war mm-hmm. all the time. Um, my personal story was, uh, yeah, us kids back in Porterville, California, small little town there in the Orange Belt, uh, we'd go down to uh, the parade, the Armistice Day Parade. They had it in, uh, in um, my youth. And there were balloons and people selling, you know, whirly gigs and all kinds of neat things. And uh, the parade floats would come by and all the bands and the horses and all that. And it was a big to-do. And later on, when I was a Boy Scout, uh, it had changed to Veterans Day. So I was so honored to be one of the six or seven scouts that got dressed up in Army uniforms and helmets and, oh, my gosh, helmets. And uh, they put us on a float, which was a trailer, flatbed trailer. And we were recreating uh, the hoisting of the flag on Iwo Jima, I think it was, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Iwo Jima. And Mm -hmm. so they painted us all gold. Our faces were gold, our uniforms were gold, and we rode that proudly. And oh my gosh, how much more heroic could we ever be than to be on that float? Just. and I look back on it now and I say, my whole childhood was based on uh, uh, on shooting uh, fake army men, little play army men with rubber bands from the paper route and throwing clods at them and figs back in the fig tree. And one day I had an epiphany. Oh, we used to use BB guns too. And uh, I built a impenetrable fort out of Lincoln logs and surrounded it with dirt and uh, then I bombed it with clods. And uh, then I went up to see how well I had done at making my fort. There was one out of 50 little soldiers left standing. and He was on the corner with a rifle shooting back at me. And I thought, what if I'm not that one? Mm. Yeah. What if you're not the one that survived? What if you're the other 49 that die? Mm-hmm. It's uh, one thing about going to war as a young person. And, uh, of course, the United States insists on sending children or preparing children to war and then waiting until they turn 18 and to send them into combat. Mm-hmm. But um, that's why we never did join the uh the Alliance of Nations Against Child Soldiers. We still have not agreed to not have child soldiers prepared to fight for the United States. And uh, it chills me all over to to think that our country uh, thinks in these terms but then again, on the other hand, it's, uh, we get more concerned about a police dog getting shot than we do about uh, raw recruits going out and, and facing hostile fire or IEDs or uh, artillery mm-hmm. of people who feel like they have to kill them in order to protect their own families and country. Mm-hmm. And that recruiting's alive and well. I mean, my campus, I received a phone call. They didn't realize who they were calling, I don't think, politically. <laughs> um, and we had a nice chat. But it's, it's very active, and there's so many resources poured into it all yep. the time. We have a program in Veterans for Peace, Chapter 35 in Spokane, called Truth and Recruitment. And we are opposed, uh, as veterans, to the presence of the junior ROTC in Rogers High School. Uh, The military recruiters are in all six high schools in Spokane. They have free access, come anytime. Uh, We have sat down with the Board of Education and with individual principals of those six high schools, and they are now allowing our literature to be into the guidance departments of those high schools. So far, however, we've only gotten into one high school in Cheney. Uh, We've been in there twice during their lunch times to discuss alternatives to the military and also to challenge the military recruiters in the information they're giving out to these young people. 
over at Rogers, the junior ROTC, as I understand it, uh, has weapons practice. They teach the young people how to use rifles on rifle ranges. Uh, they have classes at taxpayer expense, and they have military uh, personnel teaching those classes over at Rogers High School. And we're opposed to that. We think there's plenty of time for that kind of training when they get out of high school. Mm-hmm. Just a side note, I've got some information that uh, I haven't been able to verify yet, but uh, uh, a good source has told me that there are two classrooms of students at University High School now undergoing uh, training and education by military officers, not teachers, and that they are also practicing uh, live fire on campus, target practice, teaching the kids how to use weapons. And that, uh, we also heard from one of the uh, school board members that um, there are clubs on campus to help kids learn how to do cyber espionage. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what they're learning, but they're also learning supposedly how to stop cyber espionage. But these clubs are all over the country Mm -hmm. in high schools, and guess who sponsors them? Would you think it might be the Air Force or somebody? Or the NSA? Northrop Grumman. Oh. Check it out. Well, it's big business. Uh, There's a trend that bothers me as a a sports fan. I happen to be a fan of uh, collegiate sports in particular. And uh, coming up right away, we have a big uh, Veterans Day basketball tournament with the best uh, teams in college basketball. And it's all... uh, to honor our heroes. There's a ripe word, heroes. And uh, one of our colleagues from a chapter in Ohio uh, just wrote a piece in a, a local paper there about how he tried to remember if he had seen any heroic actions when he was in Vietnam. Did he see anything that resembled a heroic action. And he said he couldn't think of a thing. He could think of a lot of despicable things, including some things he did himself. And I think we all kind of fall into that category. So who are we making our heroes when we say we're gonna honor heroes on this Veterans Day that was hijacked from Armistice Day because we can't have a day to celebrate peace That's just uh, unheard of. And we did have International Peace Day on September 21st. How much did you see headlining the newspapers or on television about that? Mm -hmm. And here last Thursday in the Spokesman Review, here's a big headline about an Armistice Day event. I said, oh, how exciting. Somebody recognizes Armistice Day. Well, it was to honor the heroes that died in the Argonne Forest and honor the construction of the Argonne Street Bridge. (laughs) It's a a history thing. And we in the United States look at history according to wars, when they were fought, where they were fought, and who won, because we always won, we thought, until Vietnam. And uh, so now we, we can't get out of that. We have to convince ourselves that somehow we're going to win. We're going to win. I saw someone was interviewed about a, a gate in, uh, on television, about a gate in Coeur d'Alene, I think, or maybe it was Sandpoint, where they had these figures uh, on the gate of military men from bygone days, obviously muskets or something they were holding. And somebody had objected to that, and the community just went berserk. You can't take the guns away. The whole purpose of the military, one person said, is to kill people. We can't have a war without killing people. We can't have our military without killing people. And what are you going to use if you don't have guns? So in a way, that justifies the gun culture that we have, and it also justifies in the mind of the shooters every single mass shooting that we have in this country. And I've lost count on those. Mm-hmm. I think Hollis was going to tell us about the, the white rose as opposed to the, uh, excuse me, not the white carnation as opposed no, to the, the poppy, <laughs> poppy uh, that came out of that tradition. But I want to say one thing before he explains that. 
there are two projects that we're very proud of that our local chapter 35, Spokane Veterans for Peace, has done in the city recently. Uh, first, we brought the Milai exhibit to the Central Downtown Library, which was a traveling exhibit of the atrocity of U.S. Armed Forces in Milai in March of 1968. Uh, that was a well-attended event. The, the Central Library was glad to sponsor it with us. And we also now have a uh, drone quilt down there that I think Hollis is going to tell us a little bit more about. Mm-hmm. And I'll just throw in a small plug. Um, when I post this podcast episode, when I do it on social media, I'll I'll repost some old episodes. Um, I talked with Mike Hastie about Milai when that happened, and it was a great interview. So if folks listening want to hear more about that, I'll put that link in with this link when I post the show. Thank you. Well, getting getting uh, to the point of the drone quilt project, uh, that was uh, here for the 2019 National Veterans for Peace Convention that was held at the Doubletree back in August. And uh, Chapter 35 had the express uh, responsibility and honor of sponsoring that and hosting that. Um, so as part of the what was left over were the drone quilts. They're out of Portland. And what these are are quilts. They're six by six. And... Uh, they each square represents their foot square. Each, each uh, square represents a child or a person who has been uh, killed by a drone strike. And these are non-military personnel. And uh, you can make these quilt squares yourself if you'd like. And then they can be part, I think there are 17 quilts now and there's more coming uh, because there are more drones killing people all the time. And uh, those are, of course, uh, extrajudicial killings. They're collateral damage killings of, uh, of uh, civilians and uh, who are trying to protect their own homeland. So uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy all around. But anyway, those are on display uh, down at the third floor of the uh, main library, main public library in Spokane. And they're they haven't promoted that yet because they're still developing materials and bookmarks and things to go with it but that will be coming soon um, so keep uh, in touch with your local library um, George represent, uh, mentioned that uh, I'm in touch with the Peace Pledge Union out of the UK uh, which is uh, Britain which is England and uh, they have a very active program over there uh, producing white poppies and uh, incidentally this year they have sold more white poppies than they have ever sold before in their history of selling white poppies. Uh, they're kind of expensive, 75 cents a piece, <laughs> but they are hardy. Uh, anyway, um, what's news over there is that the British Legion has now changed its policy to include civilians in remembrance and uh, what that means is it used to be they only endorsed the red poppy, which was honoring all the fallen soldiers and the veterans uh, of wars. And now they're admitting that the white poppy could be useful in remembrance of civilians and the collateral uh, damage that has been done, as well as the idea of peace. Hmm. So inside the center of each white poppy is the word peace. So here's a little statement about what they said. The Peace Pledge Union has welcomed a decision by the Royal British Legion to promote remembrance for civilians for the first time. The British Legion's website on remembrance now uh, states uh, that we acknowledge innocent civilians who have lost their lives in conflict and acts of terrorism. Up until last year, the Legion insisted that Remembrance Sunday should only be concerned with UK and allied armed forces personnel. And the change uh, in position appears to be a response to criticisms from various quarters in recent years, including from the Peace Pledge Union, who produced the white poppies and advocate remembrance for all victims of war of all nationalities. While the shift in the British Legion's position can be seen through the uh, changed text on their website, they do not appear to have made a public announcement or to acknowledge that they have changed their policy. The Legion are best known for their production of red poppies in the run-up to Remembrance Sunday. So, anyway, that's pretty much uh, describes what their uh, what the Peace Pledge Union is mm-hmm. up to. So, I guess I'm curious about in the U.S. 
like what is the contemporary movement to to move that direction look like when Americans are so like war is so normalized and also so abstract to average Americans in our current day of drones and perpetual war and fuzzy knowledge about where are we even quote unquote at war what does that mean um i guess what is what does the movement look like now too are you talking about the peace movement sure yeah all of it well one of the things that's interesting about what rusty was talking about is the reason why the kellogg Briand pact was passed was because there was a huge peace movement in mm-hmm. in the united states back then hundreds of thousands of people put pressure on their congressional representatives to pass the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Um, yeah, Bri- uh, or, uh, Kellogg wasn't uh, that hip to doing it, but he was forced to. And I, Russell, you could probably talk more about how big this movement was, but that was back in the day. And so I don't think the peace movement's ever been that strong since. There was a huge consciousness raising movement back in the 70s that brought along some peace with it. but. Uh, uh, to have that big a movement right now, that's what we really require. Well, I, I, the one thing that strikes me as being a, a very big part of uh, resistance against any peace movement is that there is no fortune to be made out of peace. There are people, and people, everybody, almost everybody will tell you that nobody loves war, nobody wants war. And that is really a big piece of baloney because the uh, military-industrial complex, which we now call Mike, <laughs> M-I-C, uh, is, is always making money hand over fist off of our military preparation, our military adventures. And that is something that is supported even by people who seem to be otherwise progressive in politics. And, of course, it's set up our, the Pentagon has this uh, mic set up so that there is something for every single congressional district. All 435 congressional districts have at least one big project locally that they can brag about making money for their the people in the area or bringing jobs and it's building bombs or building triggers or building weapon systems or, or ammunition. Side note mm-hmm. there is that uh, we just uh, found out today that the uh, uh, a whole huge shipment of arms has been delivered to Yemen to the Saudi Arabian uh, allied forces in that country secretly delivered, secretly uh, paid for by we don't know who, but you know where those arms came from. I, I just want to mention too, Taylor, that within the military, uh, there is a large, uh, a large, significant resistance to these perpetual war projects abroad. Uh, our organization, Veterans for Peace, started in uh, in 1985 in the aftermath of Vietnam with a group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War. We later changed our name to Veterans for Peace, but within that, there were the uh, Iraqi veterans against the war in Iraq and the Afghanistan veterans against the war in Afghanistan. Those are kind of subgroups of Veterans for Peace. So within the military, the New York Times had a lead article there uh, a couple days ago about within the current military, there is concern and dissent about these military adventures abroad because they're the first ones to get hurt. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of veterans who are uh, concerned that the uh, military is not responsive to uh, the the people because the people are not represented in the military. What you have is the poverty draft. You have uh, people for all kinds of mercenary reasons going into the military. Um, to stay out of jail or to uh, get a job, that kind of thing that uh, does not, and people will will still say that they are uh, joining the military because they want to serve our country or they want to defend our country and this kind of thing, but I, that just really doesn't come into play. And when you have people telling me even now 
that I don't agree with you, but I'd fight to the death to support you, uh, your right to say it. <laughs> I, I just almost go off on that. It's, uh, it's hard for me because I never met anybody when I was in the military who was willing to die for their country. I just found everybody was willing to kill for their country. And that's what makes war go round. That's what keeps war happening. And um, the thing is, we don't have anybody willing to make peace for our country. We don't have anybody willing to wage peace because they're patriotic and because peace is patriotic and because we need peace more than we need anything else. So this, uh, it continues, and we continue to be a, a minority of voices crying in the wilderness and so forth because the uh, war is loved and it's uh, supported enthusiastically by commercial interests. There's uh, one thing I want to say about uh, service. I'd li I have come up with an answer for people who say thank you for your service without knowing what my service consisted of. And it is service on its surface may seem a noble thing, but those who fight and kill and die rarely know just whom they serve or how or why. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously war in the U.S. is something that's especially contemporarily through my lifetime and post-Vietnam has kind of crossed administrations. I, as you said, there's lots of nice progressives who are very pro-war, rather passively or actively. Um, I just think, I mean, listening this morning to uh, talk of the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, obviously that's a different topic, but how do you think that general attitude right now in our government is fueling or altering the way that we've historically looked at this topic? That's a good question, uh, which uh, segues into the damage that the military industrial complex does to the environment. Right out here at Fairchild Air Force Base, for example, uh, that is a super sun fun site due to the pollution and environmental damage that the Air Force has done to that, uh, that place over the last 25 years. Uh, Hollis would like to have the, the Fairchild Air Force Base, and I agree with him, decommissioned and turned into a peace park because right now it's used for war purposes and it's, it's lauded in our area as being a big employer and a big economic plus. The downside of Fairchild is that it's a tremendous environmental polluter. In fact, we had a pilot come to our chapter, an active duty pilot, Fairchild, who said, that routine orders as these big KC-135s are coming into Fairchild to land is to dump your extra fuel. And we asked him, where do you dump it? And he said, over the Spokane River. And we said, what happens to it then? He said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. He said, has the Air Force ever tested and questioned that? And the Air Force admits that it's polluted the uh, civilian water supply of Airway Heights. So the environment itself used to talk about pulling out of Paris Accords. The military itself is very aware of the uh, long-range security implications of global warming, but they themselves consume huge amounts of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, climate change got a huge super boost from our military activities. I mean, starting with open-air testing of nuclear weapons. Uh, we did that for a long time. You know, we ruined a lot of environment, some of it totally and irrevocably. But uh, we continue to do things to the environment in the name of national security that robs us of a, of a decent future. And it's, uh, it's really sad that people buy into this because they are more worried about their security than they are about the future health of our planet. Yeah. And then I guess the other 
I kind of muddled these two questions into one, but um, regarding, I don't know if I even want to go there, actually. <laughs> I'm going to cut that. It's too long. We only have so much time. Um, I guess what else... What else do you think that people in Spokane specifically listening should know about about Fairchild, about the impact of the military industrial complex locally, about militarism locally? How how can people outside of simply not joining the military themselves be part of education resistance to this whole culture? I think one important thing is to follow the money. I think people need to track where their tax dollars go, where their tax dollars are spent and how they are spent. Because really our, our entire, well, half of the wealth of our country goes right down the rat hole of the Pentagon and it is used in ways that we would never want to see our money used, like bombing helpless, poverty-stricken women and children in Yemen? Why do we pay for that? Mm -hmm. Why do we pay for subsidize our arms manufacturers so they will sell any weapons, any ammunition to any ugly administration around the world? Uh, it just is an incredible uh, waste of our resources and our moral standing. Mm -hmm. I think one thing you asked, Taylor, what, what can we do locally? I think education is important, and, and uh, there is a peace studies program at Whitworth University, for example, here in Spokane. We've had some contact with that faculty. Uh, we could have peace education done in the high schools alongside of the military recruiting to present alternatives there. Uh, there is tax resistance uh, a generation ago. Uh, Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen, who was the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Seattle, withheld his meager income taxes and was a tax resistor. And he actually has, was arrested over there at the Bangor Naval Base for resisting the uh, nuclear weapons over there. So there are things we can do. Uh, there's civil disobedience, there's tax resistance, there's education, there's uh, probably other things. Uh, Hollis has an idea that the Fairchild Air Force Base should be made into a peace park. Could you tell us about that? Well, that land out there where Fairchild is now, according to certain sources that I've talked to, say that that was Native American land throughout, you know, history, and that the military uh, th throughout its history has been violating that land. Uh, from the time of the Calvary days. And so uh, um, it would be just and fitting for us to acknowledge that all that land is sacred land and it should be returned to a, a sacred space. My proposal is to uh, turn, uh, convert Fairchild Air Force Base into an enterprise zone as, and part of that would be uh, to uh, uh, create an international educational campus to help educate people about everything that it is to be a human being, including the environment. And the other part would be a peace park because one of the things warriors, uh, people who used to be warriors, uh, and, and, and we're not warriors anymore, we are peace promoters, we need to practice peace. Uh, this last weekend I went on a retreat uh, on Saturday to uh, uh, up in the foothills for the entire day, and we did, uh, you know, uh, sessions on, on sitting and uh, silent walking. We had a silent meal together. We toured out in nature and walked in nature and then did more sittings. And so I think a lot more of that needs to take place where people just stop. When you find out you're heading down the wrong road, you stop. That's obvious. And uh, part of the challenge for our chapter and other peace workers is to create a sustainability uh, screen over all of our activities so that uh, um, we lessen our own imprint when we're trying to bring peace. Um, so that's basically that part uh, after the cleanup, of course, and that place is dirty mm -hmm. uh, at Fairchild. So uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. How do you think, um, and this is a whole can of worms and we only really have a few minutes, but how do you think we can start to question Fairchild's, on a local level, Fairchild's kind of sacred cow status in Spokane as something very important and special that is an asset to the community? Um, Well, that's a misnomer. Uh, I'm saying that if uh, true accounting was taking taken of Fairchild Air Force Base and the Air Force in general, you would probably find that it's a net loss to Spokane, entire region, and the and the country. And the reason why I say that is because look at the taxpayer dollars that goes just to support the darn thing. And now that we have a cleanup, look what that's going to cost. Millions and billions of dollars all around the country. Firefighting foam has been used on all these military bases. They're all polluted. And they just... Uh, uh, received a waiver of, uh, they, they can still use it if they want uh, in emergencies. Uh, the rest of the fire departments are getting rid of all that PFAS stuff. But uh, <clears throat> you, asked, you asked what we could do, uh, Taylor. Our chapter has sponsored two protest demonstrations out there since I've been in Spokane, which is only five years, and Rusty has a, a, a former history there. But our chapter tries to witness to the truth out there and uh, protest is one vehicle, letters to the editor, going to hearings when they, I understand they're bringing 400 new airmen out there with new aircraft and there'll be public hearings about that. The, so the citizens need to be alert as to what's happening at Fairchild. I think uh, we do need to put more pressure on the, the media because the media has uh, enshrined Fairchild as uh, more than a sacred cow, really, and uh, it is uh, largely worshipped for reasons that have popped up from time to time and uh, might have been valid at one time or another. But uh, certainly it is a black hole right now, and most of the military is the same way. The other parts of the military could be converted into constructive uses to actually uh, defend our country against climate change and mm-hmm. against uh, disease and mm-hmm. against the uh, the ravages of uh, the weather that's already turned against us because of what we've done for climate change. So there are possibilities along those lines, and, but it, it requires a change in thinking. It really requires a change in thinking, and we can't get to a tipping point in our thinking until we get some kind of uh, awareness by the mass media uh, which has so much to say about what we think about mm-hmm. yeah well, and the, the local uh, greater spokane pro- uh, greater spokane incorporated excuse me uh <clears throat> fairchild's their baby and they think it's just the best thing it's the largest employer and in, in the county, and yet you would think that if you're the largest employer, you would have more responsibility for taking care of your infrastructure. They're getting ready to move 400 airmen and their families, that's about 600 people, into a housing market that has less than 1% vacancy rate. So that's going to kick a lot of middle-class homeowners right out of their houses, and that doesn't even count the people here up and down 3rd Avenue that are homeless, walking up and down the street with gro- uh, grocery carts and all their belongings in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just have a couple minutes, believe it or not. Um, On the topic of media, I'm really curious from each of you if folks do want to kind of observe Armistice Day uh, rather than Veterans Day today or in the future. What's one piece of media or resource that you would really recommend that folks engage with, whether it's a book, a film, a song, a There is an author who is a friend of ours. Hollis introduced him to me and George. Uh, David Swanson. And David has written a book about Armistice Day and the change and the tragic consequences of that change from Armistice to Veterans Day and War Glorification Day from a day of peace to a day of glorifying war. And uh, David's a brilliant uh, 
writer and uh, speaker and the recipient last year of the uh, Peace Award from the uh, Progressive, the Peace Foundation, the Peace Memorial Foundation, that's what it is. He's also uh, on the board of directors of Veterans for Peace, but more importantly, he is also the director of World Beyond War, of which our Chapter 35 is an affiliate member. And if you'll go to worldbeyondwar.org, you'll find a list of websites and media and social media pages that you can go to all over the world where actions are taking place from Africa, New Zealand, all over the world. And you can find out what's going on in other countries, and maybe we can use some of those ideas here in our own county. You can also go to our website, which has been newly uh, refurbished, and uh, you can go to our, uh, our uh, site. And you, uh, we, uh, we ourselves have published a couple of pamphlets uh, that have to do with the themes of peace, various essays and poems. And there's more information about that on the website. And I think Hollis will tell you how to get to that website. Yes, it's real simple. <clears throat> www.spokaneveteransforpeace.org. Mm -hmm. And, and the national site is veteransforpeace.org. Yeah, and I will post all those links and everything else that you all mentioned in the podcast notes, which people can find by going to kyrs.org navigating to shows and clicking on Praxis or by searching Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, in the podcasting app of your preference. Uh, you can also email me follow-up questions at Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, at K-Y-R-S dot org. So, um, yeah, thank you all for being back on with me again. It's always a pleasure. Um, like I said, I'll post links to all the past shows. I think most of y'all have been on and a lot of your comrades um, from the chapter here. I really appreciate the work that you all do to educate the rest of us and yeah fight to stop fighting I thank suppose. you taylor yeah thanks taylor thank you <laughs> <laughs>